Let's pray as we come to the word this evening. Father, we are thankful that even as we talked about this morning that you are a God who uses means, we're thankful for these means that we have already seen this evening in the waters of baptism, in our fellowship together, in the gift of song, in the gift of prayer, and now in the gift of the Word as we hear it read and preached. We're thankful that you are God who does not leave us to ourselves, continually presses in on us by your word and by your spirit. We pray that you would do your work this evening for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 23, this is the holy and errant word of God. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall and he was angry, and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the spaces behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that, it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. 
And each of the builders had a sword strapped at the side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spear from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and a servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be on guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. When John Calvin was in Geneva, he had people that would name their dogs Calvin so that they could just kick Calvin, they said. When he would preach there in the church, people would yell out in the middle of his sermons and talk loudly so that people couldn't hear his preaching. Calvin says that finally the Genevan City Council decided to outlaw that anybody could talk in a service or yell out in a service. And so he says the people began doing loud bodily noises instead. They will eventually force Calvin to leave Geneva and he will flee and he will be glad that he can leave Geneva and he never wants to return and Geneva will be up in arms uh, because they, the city falls apart without Calvin and Pharrell there and so they will reapproach Calvin and they'll ask him to come back. Calvin will write to a dear friend of his, he will say, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than to return to Geneva and suffer the cross which I daily bore a thousand times over there. And yet, Calvin will head back to Geneva after much consultation and much prayer, believing he must go there to do the work of the Lord. George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the 18th century and preacher, the probably most widely known man in all the world at that time, uh, preached in England and preached in the American colonies. He would go up and down the seaboard preaching, and after he preached in the county of New Haven, there was a declaration that was signed and circulated there declaring, quote, that religion is now in a far worse state than it was before Whitfield's preaching. After he preached in Charlestown, a local newspaper there attacked him as blasphemous and uncharitable and unreasonable. Whitfield was attacked by a woman with scissors and by her teeth, he says. He was routinely, while he was preaching, stones were thrown at his head and fruits and vegetables, and then all of a sudden people started throwing dead cats at his head, and that became part of his labor in the colonies, getting dead cats thrown at his head. He says that one time a man climbed a tree as he was passing by just so he could urinate on him while he was going by. 
Charles Simeon, the famous preacher and evangelist, was first appointed as the pastor of the church in Cambridge, England in 1783. He was absolutely delighted. The church was less so. People were not excited that he was going to be their preacher, that he was going to minister to them. And at that time, a family would rent a pew. They would have a, a pew rental, and it was a box. And it was you would pay your tithe to the church, and then that was your family's box to sit in. They did it here in the American colonies too. The wealthy families in the church all got together and they decided, you know, we don't like Charles Simeon as our pastor. And so they all locked their boxes and they all refused to show up to church. And so when people came to church, all they could do was sit in the center aisle and on the aisles on the outside. And the rest of the church was empty. And yet Charles Simeon continued to preach and continued to pastor there and eventually would have a great ministry among them. You expect opposition if you live for God. You expect opposition if you seek to lead God's people in a godly direction. We tend to think that God is blessing when things are smooth and when they're easy and that He's cursing when things are hard and when they are difficult, but that is often not the case. Conflict and opposition are often the greatest signs that we are doing something worthwhile, evidence that our enemy doesn't want to see it realized. As with Nehemiah in our text, if you're leading God's people in a godly direction, then you can expect opposition from without and you can expect opposition from within. Every leader in the church must expect this. This is maybe the most shocking thing for, for newly minted pastors out of seminary and newly minted elders in the church as they come to sit on the session. It's just how much conflict there is, how much opposition there is. And seminary professors rarely speak about it. There is no class on it that I have seen ever in a seminary. And yet I mentor a lot of younger pastors, and you know, I spend those first months, and especially those first couple of years, I'm not answering questions about how to preach. I'm not answering questions about how to teach. I'm not even answering questions about what they should do when they're in a counseling situation, in a hard case, or how they should preach a funeral. The most often question is, what do I do with this conflict, with this opposition, with the fact that people don't like me or don't like my ministry? It comes. There's constant conflict in opposition in ministry. That will be true for anyone that's in a leadership position. There's that old saying that if everyone is angry with you, you're doing something wrong. And if everyone is happy with you, you're doing something wrong. Opposition comes, and it comes from without, and it comes from within. The first opposition that Nehemiah receives in the text is ridicule. Sanballat, Nehemiah says, jeers at him and at the Jews. He tells us in verse 1, why? Because he says, because he was angry. He was greatly enraged. In verse 7, we find them very angry. And ridicule is often how it begins. Why? Because it is so incredibly effective. Uh, you tear somebody down about who they are or what they do, and 
mock them. It proves effective because we are all weak. We all have hidden insecurities. None of us are 100% confident. None of us are 100% convinced. None of us are 100% resolute. And then the ridicule comes and it picks at the stitching, removing one thread of confidence here and another there, seeking to unravel the whole garment of conviction. And Sambalati is such a ridiculer. He is relentless. He throws five different taunts at, taunts at Nehemiah and the Jews. The first, he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? He reminds them of their weakness and he reminds them that, look, you're about to embark upon a big project and you're weak. Then in the second, he says, will they restore it for themselves? That is, this is a wall that is two miles long around. Don't you Jews know what you are about ready to do? How, you will, how will you accomplish this when it took more than what you have there now at this time in Jerusalem to build it the first time around? And then he asks, will they sacrifice? And here he's holding no punches. Now he's going to ridicule their faith. Will they sacrifice an offering to God, burn some animals, and all of a sudden, magically, the walls will pop up? It's one thing when people mock you. It's quite another when they begin to mock your faith. And he asks, will they finish up in a day? That is, don't they realize how great a task this is? And there are a few things that are more discouraging than having a big task that's before you that you're about ready to embark upon and that you're hard work, working hard at, and then your enemies surround you and remind you of how big the task is as they're looking over your shoulder. You think you're going to accomplish that? And finally, he asks, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? He's not only mocking them, he's, a mocking, he's mocking the materials that they would use. He says, you are not only weak, what you would use to rebuild this wall, it is weak. You have very little hope of getting this done. This brings Tobiah to offer his mocking voice as well. He says, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. The wall was built for protection. He says, ha, not only will it not protect you from your enemies, but if just a little old wolf jumps up on your wall, it will come crashing down. How pitiful is your work? All this ridicule is meant to cause fear, and it's meant to cause anxiety within. You aren't good enough. You're doing the wrong thing. You can't accomplish the task. Who do you think you are? And fear arises. It boils up. Fear can take many forms in such circumstances. It can be fear of these people being right, fear of personal injury, fear of the cost, fear of the sacrifice, but probably most importantly, just fear that you're going to fail. Fear that these people might actually be right. And fear can be one of the greatest inhibitors of faithfulness in the moment. It's a real thing. And it's a real thing that has to be combated. 
In verse 8, we find these enemies of Nehemiah and the people of God, Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, that they're all plotting together. It's very reminiscent, isn't it, of Psalm 2, where the nations are plotting together. Nehemiah says they're plotting together to come and to fight against the Jews. Now, ridicule is no longer sufficient because it didn't work. It didn't work to attack them verbally and emotionally and mentally, so now we're going to attack them physically. We're going to assault them. And the fiercest attack is plotted by these enemies when Nehemiah and the people are at their weakest. They have been laboring, he tells us in verse 6. They've built half the height of the wall, and that is no small project. Two miles around, and they built half the height of the wall. And so they are exhausted and they are tired and they have been busy about this work. And it's often then, when we're tired, the strongest attacks come. Because our enemy is no fool. We must always be vigilant, always on guard, but especially when we're tired. Often in our family, in the Holopolis household, after it has been a long day or it's been a long week or someone has not slept well at night, uh, we will often use the refrain, I remember how tired you are. We have to especially be on guard right now. To be on guard, we're tired. For those Jews... It was the promise of physical assault when they were at their lowest. Like many who had gone before them and many who will come after them, the enemies of God threatened the people of God with injury and even death. And how tempted they must have been just to throw in the towel to say, we're done, this is over. They've already been mocked, they've already been ridiculed, they've already done hard work and they've only done half the work. They are bone tired and now there is the threat of physical danger right before them. Think of someone like the Apostle Paul, who seems like the Lord prepared beforehand so he would know what it was that he was going to have to endure when he was there, and he's chasing down Christians, and he's rounding them up to imprison them, and he's standing there when Stephen is being stoned to death. And Stephen serves as a teacher and a mentor to the Apostle Paul. I think probably for the rest of his days, Paul must have looked back to Stephen and remembered the example that he had seen. That God was preparing Paul. Paul who will say in 2 Corinthians that he suffered imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Once I was stoned three times, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my, my anxiety for all the church. What opposition, what trial, what fatigue, and why not throw in the towel? Well, it's the same Apostle Paul who will say later, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. 
he will be the same Apostle Paul that after he has been stoned in Lystra, that he will go to the churches in the area and he will say to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Understood. He'd been taught this truth by Stephen and now he's teaching it to the rest of the church and modeling it before him. Opposition from without and from within is part of the path of the Christian's discipleship. And it is a mark of Christian leadership. Conflict and opposition are often the greatest signs that we're doing something worthwhile and our enemy doesn't want to see it realized. How do we withstand such attacks, such opposition? First, let's know what Nehemiah did and that he did not do. He did not respond in kind. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest of these are throwing insults at him, he does not respond with insults. When they prepare for attack, he doesn't lash out first and attack them. No, instead he does three things, which I think are incredibly instructive. First, to withstand opposition, let us run to God in prayer. Sambalat offers ridicule, Tobiah mocks, and Nehemiah's response is prayer. In verse 4, he runs to God in prayer. And prayer is the greatest weapon of defense that the Christian possesses. It is, in fact, the greatest weapon of defense in the universe. You can call forth a a sword, you can summon forth a, a shield, you can call forth a tank, but it can't compare to calling out the power of a sovereign God. And Nehemiah knows this, and so he runs to his God first. He's surrounded on every side by enemies, and they're getting ready to attack, they're posturing, and he runs to God first in prayer. Because Nehemiah knows that these enemies do not stand a chance. Because none of the enemies of God's people stand a chance. It's quite a prayer that he prays. It's imprecatory in nature. He wants them destroyed. And we may recoil at that a little bit, especially as we just went through the Sermon on the Mount and we are to pray for our enemies. But Nehemiah recognized This was not just an attack against the people of God, but this was an attack against God Himself. That that was the foundation of His opposition to them, that they were opposed to God. This was a work of His kingdom. This was about the kingdom of God. This was not just a battle against the Jews, but against God. And so Nehemiah's prayer is right. It's righteous. It's justified and it's a holy prayer because Nehemiah is calling for God's justice where sin has taken a hold and where these unrepentant sinners have set themselves up against God and refused to back away from it. So he says, let your justice reign. Let it come down. These people that have set themselves up against you, O Lord. What enemies of God's people misunderstand is that they are not simply setting themselves up against feeble people. They're setting themselves up against a sovereign God, an almighty God. What did Jesus say to the Apostle Paul when he was Saul at the time and he was on his 
way to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting Christians? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with his people. You're not just opposing God's people when you oppose the church. You're opposing God. You're not just an enemy of the church. You're an enemy of God. Nehemiah has that clearly in view. And so he runs to the Lord in prayer. And that is the right first response. We face opposition and our inclination is to respond in kind. Or if we don't respond in kind, our inclination is to run to some friends for support, for good encouragement, to say, ah, I want to make sure, bolster me up, help me to know that I'm on the right path, I'm doing the right thing. And that's good, but secondarily. As Nehemiah does here, we are first to run to God. The sovereign Father of ours that is in heaven. And only secondarily turn to others. And so that is what he does. Now, prayers don't always stop the opposition, but they always give strength in the midst of it. And that's why Daniel prays when he's in the den. That's why David prays when he's in the cave. That's why Jesus prays when he's in the garden. No doubt the great initial effect upon Nehemiah was that it calmed his fears, it calmed his anxieties, it quieted him within. I love that after that prayer... Nehemiah just simply says in verse 6, he prays this prayer, and then he just says, so we built the wall. All this opposition, pray for God's judgment, fear subsides. So we built the wall. They just got busy about it. They continued in the work. But the enemies of God, they are not easily deterred, so more opposition comes, even as fellow Jews come in verse 10, 12 from outside of the city, and they come complaining and asking Him to stop the work. Nehemiah says they came ten times. It's a roundabout way of saying they just kept coming and coming. It's a true sign of frustration on His part. These people that should have been supportive, that should have been allies, that should have been friends, are opposed. What do you do? What do you do in the midst of that? Well, you pray, and you pray, and you pray. But not only that. Second, we remain responsible. Nehemiah prays, but he also prepares. He gathers all the people together, and he stations them together in clans. And then he gives them weapons, he gives them shields, and he gives them spears, and he gives them swords, and he gives them bows. And he stations them together in clans. There's much wisdom in this because you're going to fight well for the person that's next to you. If they're your brother or your sister or your father or your son. He does not just pray and just leave it up to God. He equips them, he prepares them, and he encourages them. There's no let go and let God mindset in Nehemiah. And there's to be no such mindset among us either. Trusting in God doesn't mean that we give up effort. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for negligence. Rather, His sovereignty is motivation for activity. Trusting in God means efforting. It means upholding our duty. It means being busy about the thing before us, but with the confidence that God will accomplish what He has promised. 
that he will do what he has said he will do. He doesn't need to use us, but he chooses to use us, and so we remain responsible. There's that great verse on sanctification that I often goes through my mind when I'm thinking along these lines, right, where uh, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Engage, be responsible. But then he says, for it is God who is at work within you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He's at work, so you're at work. It doesn't matter if you're at work if he's not at work. But when he is at work, you're at work. You labor even as he labors. Nehemiah, he equips the people, he encourages them, he equips them with weapons and with adequate preparation. He has the people work in shifts and the rest stay in guard duty. He tells us that they kept a, a trowel in one hand as they're making the wall and they kept a sword in the other hand. This has often been used as a picture of the Christian in the world. A trowel in one hand, we're building up. And a sword in the other hand, we're defending, we're ready to fight. So they are, they, he tells us, they slept in their clothes, each had their weapon by their side. They would have made good Boy Scouts living by that motto, be prepared. Had their boots on. They were ready for whatever would come in the morning. Whatever would come with the light. They were ready for action, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And so they were ready for whatever came. And then there is this wonderful, brave heart kind of moment here in chapter 4. Love it. I almost feel it. Mel Gibson is in the text. You got all the people gathered by their clans are there with their swords and with their spears and with their bows. And then Nehemiah, they're trembling because all of their enemies are around them. They're ready to attack. And Nehemiah rises above them all. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. It's not in the text, but right after that, he yelled, freedom. I'm pretty confident. Do not be afraid. In the face of opposition, that is a good reminder. Be strong and courageous. It is a continual refrain throughout the scriptures that God says to the leaders of his people and that the leaders of God's people say to the people of God. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Maybe the greatest way to do this is the third way, and Nehemiah withstands the opposition by remembering. Remembering the Lord's person and remembering the Lord's work. He says, do not be afraid. On what basis, Nehemiah? Well, he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done. And this, again, is one of the most repeated admonitions in the Scriptures. Remember. Remember God. Remember what He has done. Why? Because it is so simple to forget. 
We are so prone to forget who God is, so prone to forget His mercy, so prone to forget His strength, so prone to forget His workings in the past. We're to remember. Remember. We look back on His faithfulness because the mind that is filled with who the Lord is, it quiets the heart's anxieties. And when we look back on what He has done in the past, that gives us peace in the present and it gives us hope for the future. I've said this to you a lot of times and we'll keep saying it to you a lot of times, but because I think about it all the time, that the Christian's mind should be a field that is littered with outcrops of Ebenezer stones where you have all kinds of little places in your mind where you say the Lord did this and the Lord did that, the Lord did this and the Lord did that, so you can recall them in remembrance. Be strong and courageous. David Livingston, the famous missionary to Africa, he lost his wife early in the ministry and then he endured staunch opposition from his Scottish friends and family and church members back home. Even as he ministered, he ministered half blind. There were all kinds of discouragements, all kinds of oppositions, all kinds of assaults. And he wrote one day in his diary to God this. He said, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Sever me from any tie, but the tie that binds me to your service into your heart. Fears, anxieties, opposition, trials. And he remembers God. He remembers who God is. And that's what gives him the strength. That's what gives him the courage. That's what gives him the fortitude to go forward. To be busy about the kingdom work. To not be discouraged. To not throw in the towel. To not give in. So it was for Nehemiah, he says in verse 20, our God will fight for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? In this day, our God will fight for us. You must as a Christian. I often speak of Christ being our Savior, and we need to speak of that all the time. But He cannot be our Savior unless He is also our King. And as our King, He is defending us from all our enemies. And He's not just defending us from all our enemies. He's subjugating all of our enemies. They shall all be laid as a footstool beneath His feet. Our enemies are not just our enemies. They're His enemies. And so we have great confidence. Because none can stand against Him. None. He will rule and reign over all and every knee will bow before Him. 
How do I have such confidence? How can you have such confidence? Because we can remind ourselves, we can remember what He has done. We have evidence. When He died upon that cross, He defeated sin and Satan and hell. When He rose from the grave on the third day, He defeated death. He made a mockery of the world and its power. He reigns and rules over all. And all His and our enemies, as the Shorter Catechism says, all His and our enemies are being laid beneath His feet. So we can go forward. We can go forward with strength. We can go forward with courage. We can go forward with hope. We can go forward with resolve and be busy about kingdom work. Because God will fight for us. So let's go on, Christian soldiers. You're going to need to remind yourself of this more and more in the days ahead, I do believe. Let's go on, Christian soldiers. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are thankful. Father, that you are a God who works on behalf of your people. We're thankful, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are king over all. That you shall subjugate all of your enemies and our enemies beneath your feet. That though the world around us may be loud, its opposition may be great, its fury may be strong, we need not despair. And as a church, not as individual Christians, whatever opposition we face, whatever trial we are going through, whatever struggle there is, you reign. You rule. And you will fight for us. We believe that. We trust in that. And we will look to you in faith. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.